When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Just go ahead and uh, introduce yourself and tell us about your uh, dog life journey. Sure. My name is Noelle Heron, and I um, am from Indiana. I run Silver Ridge Gampers and Silver Ridge Farms, and we um, have been doing raising gampers for probably about, I want to say maybe seven years or so. Um, we began uh, in gamper world originally um, in because we were needing another dog to replace a dog that was aging. And we did probably about three years of research before we landed upon the Armenian Gamper or Gomper, depending upon where you're from. Mm -hmm. Um, And we found them and they just fit the bill for every single category that we needed. We needed something that was going to be good with kids. We needed something that was going to be a formidable deterrent for the huge number of coyote packs that we had out in our area. And we needed something um, that that would be flexible for our lifestyle. Right. And uh, could you uh, tell you tell us about the breed and, and um, uh, a little uh, history on them? Sure. Uh, the, the Gamper is one of the oldest breeds that history records. There's, there's accounts way even before biblical times of this, this breed. And actually, this breed is considered a land race. So that kind of differs from the typical maybe verbiage that, that we use for other breeds. It's um, because of its land race nature, it allows for uh, a greater genetic variation which also includes uh, health longevity and and hardiness within the breed but because of um, that location it pulls in from all different sorts of um, cultures in the Caucasus mountain type region which includes Armenia and Turkey Um, many of the breeds that we see today of the livestock guardian breeds originated with Gamper. Um, we see re- breeds like the Tangle, the Opbosh, um, the Anatolian Shepherd. Um, even some of the breeds that are Russian in orientation have originated and, and gotten their starts from the Gamper. Uh, a lot of this is due in part to um, the occupations um, and seizures that have happened in the that region, both by the Ottoman Empire and even by the Russians, um, and when the Turkish people, ha- or when the, the Armenian people have been taken over, um, their best dogs and some of the great dogs have been taken over, um, or at least their perceived best dogs have been taken over um, as kind of conquests of, of war to those areas, and um, those are how some of the other breeds have started. Interesting. Uh, so we chose this breed in huge part because of their ability to be with children. Mm-hmm. We 
had uh, Great Pyrenees before this, and um, we had we actually had two before this. One that we loved and was awesome, and one that had some of the typical problems that you hear maybe with a typical Great Pyrenees um, nowadays with uh, issues of wandering, and they don't want to stay home, they don't want to stay in fence lines, um, and those things. Um, but we needed a dog that was going to stay home, was going to be great with the kids. Um, we At the time, we had six children, um, ranging in age, I think, um, from, I would say at the time, maybe about 11 or 12 down to about four. And so we had young kids. We needed a dog that had the ability to take out a, a huge predator or to take out huge packs of predators. Uh, we, we have livestock, and, and so we need them for that purpose. But at the same time, to be able to have that duplicity of being able to be gentle and soft with our children, um, because nobody wants an animal that can hurt their, you know, anybody in their family. So that was a, one of the biggest reasons that we chose this breed. Oh. I was just going to say they have a forbidden nature that is that is much higher than, like, say, you would see in a Great Pyrenees. Um, there's some Great Great Pyrenees out there but they don't have the same presence that these dogs do. Uh, these dogs uh, are not going to let strange animals, albeit dogs or wild dogs, coyotes, bears, wolves, uh, mountain lions onto the property, but in the same way they also won't allow strangers to come onto your property. And what is their typical size range that you've uh, experienced? Oh, that's, that's a great question. There's a huge um, size um, variance in this dog, and I, and I think that that goes back to the land race nature of the mm -hmm. breed. Um, there are dogs that originate from the north and from the east and the west, and each of those dogs has a different um, size that's more typically associated with it. We see um, dogs typically from the north that have a, a little bit larger body mass, and so, you know, um, the dogs that um, we see here in America can range anywhere from 90 to, I would say, about just shy maybe of 200 pounds, 180 pounds, something in that range. Um, we tend to, on our farm, tend to have the bigger dogs. It wasn't necessarily something we planned. We were, we were so blessed in being able to, to have good dogs when we started, but we really didn't know what we were doing and um, found out a whole bunch afterwards. And we're so happy that, that we um, had some help along the way to, to make a good choice. So um, there's just that huge range of size mm -hmm. in, the, in these dogs. And have you noticed uh, uh, the difference in personality, say, between the males and the females? <laughs> um, you know, I think it's more... Per I get asked that question quite frequently. I think it's more based on the specific animal than it is mm -hmm. um, related to gender. I, I think, I guess if I would have to say overall, now this doesn't always hold true, I would say that I think that the females tend to be a little bit... Um, bossier and more more particular um and the boys tend to the males tend to be a little bit more um laid back as far as relationships with each other but um as far as their ability to handle predators there's absolutely no difference i think um sometimes people associate 
you know, the larger or slightly larger size of the males and think that they're going to be a more, um, more scary presence and, or, or they're able to handle a predator better, but we haven't found that that's accurate. And so say if somebody had um, smaller dogs or, or a cat or two in the house, how would they uh, socialize with them? You know, uh, these the camper have, has a has a um, amazing ability to associate what is normal and what belongs, and separate that from what is not normal and what doesn't belong. And so, for example, we have probably maybe seven or eight cats on our property, and our dogs don't chase our, our cats. Um, we have rabbits um, on our property. The dogs don't chase the rabbits because we've. They, we've told them that they belonged. They, they've learned that they belonged. I know that people have um, had these dogs guard um, open clutches of rabbits, and they don't attack the rabbits. Uh, same thing with the chickens and the poultry. Um, but they, they know what belongs and what doesn't. Now, if a stray dog comes onto the property, again, um, it, it, and it doesn't belong there, the dog, the damper, will warn a warning bark, which basically is, is intimidating, and hopefully the dog will leave. And if it doesn't, um, then the dog will do what it was meant to do, and it will um, take care of that threat so that it protects its home and its um, other animals. Um, we've even been contacted, and we've, we've met people that use these dogs to um, guard and protect other dogs, um, like smaller breeds of dogs, mm -hmm. from predators. Wow. And that works out wonderfully. Wow. <clears throat> How many would you say are in the United States or North America right now? Oh, um, <laughs> at one point, not so long ago, I think we were around 500. So my guess is that we're probably in that 500, uh, probably not exceeding the 1,000 mark range. Wow. So they're still very, very rare. Right. You're probably one of a handful of breeders, huh? We were. I, I think we were maybe one of the first breeders in the Midwest that, that we knew of mm -hmm. um, at the time. Um, we've, we've just been so happy with this breed. We never intended to be breeders when we got our first dog. Yeah. We just wanted a guardian and um and we did what what they always say not to do is fall in love with the breed and decide that your dogs are great and, <laughs> and start breeding yeah. um but it turned out that we really did have some awesome dogs and um they were totally worthy of being of being bred um and we've continued to import dogs from armenia and um have had a lot of success doing that especially through the club it's, it's important for people that want to import dogs from armenia um, as opposed to buying them in, in the United States to, to contact the Armenian Gamper Club of America mm -hmm. so that um, they make sure that they're getting dogs that are, one, actually gampers, two, that they are able to be registered, and that we know their lineage on, on those dogs because it's, it's really hard to get that paperwork post-sale, um, whereas it's a little bit easier to get it pre-sale. And are they, uh, they aren't registered uh, through the FCI yet, are they? No, they're registered right now through the Armenian Camper Club of America. Um, many dogs, based upon their pedigree, are also eligible to be registered with the um, American Rare Breed Association. Uh -huh. So, for example, my, my dogs are, some of them are double registered, but they all have the capability of being double registered. Okay. 
And how has that experience been with the American Rare Breed Association? Do they have shows you know, and all that? They do have shows, um, and and um, typically the shows are more well attended by the people that live on the West Coast, um, and typically they're in located in that area. So we have not gone to a show. It's not something that um, that we really probably at this point intend to do. So you just never know what the future holds with that in regards to that but we have a full working farm mm-hmm. uh, we also have six kids and um <laughs> a full plate of you know, homeschooling and and um everything else and so um you know that's just not logistically feasible for us at this point right. but yeah so um gampers are very um very vocal with their initial warning you can hear um if you're close to the dog, you could hear that they see or or feel something that doesn't belong. They will begin to kind of rumble in their chest, and then they may let out a few really high-pitched, sharp um, barks, and those are like their pre-warning barks, and then um, they will charge to the area um, that they hear the sound, maybe not fully to the area or wherever they see the, the issue going on, and the first line of defense is always the bark, and we, we as, as owners and, and always want our dogs to deploy the situation um, with as much vocal content as possible so that they can avoid a confrontation um, physically if, if possible. Mm-hmm. And so that's always the goal. And so they'll bark, 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 they'll run the fence lines, they'll snarl, they'll growl they bark and typically um their bark is enough inter- enough deterrent to make the predator leave um but if not then they will chase that predator down oftentimes um we see in a good pack of dogs a well-balanced pack of dogs we see that there are um three different types of size types of dogs in a pack um, if you've balanced it well. You have really large dogs and you only need one or two of those in a in a pack. And those dogs um, may appear lazy or listless. You may think, oh, what, why am I feeding this big dog? Um, but they um, are big and bulky and they are not necessarily the first to the fight um, if they have to go chase off a predator. They're, they're typically slower. Um, but they are the ones that finish off um, the animal when they get there. Mm-hmm. Then you also have the thin, you know, spry, uh, muscular dogs that, that are quick runners, and um, those usually have the smallest body type, and so those are the t- typically the ones that will meet the predator and, and start the dispatching process. And um, then you have a medium-sized dog who um, may or may not um, pursue with as much um, vigor, the predator. Um, oftentimes we see that the packs instinctively divide up into groups, a group that charges the predator and a group that stays back and uh, surrounds the livestock mm-hmm. in kind of like a dual force effort. And um, so I'm not sure that that totally answers the question, no. but we found that, that that kind of is really a cool dance to see them uh, do. Right. Oh, perfect. Yeah, so there are basically two different functions that the dogs 
that the Armenian camper serves in Armenia currently. And um, the first one is they are currently still being used, like they've been used for thousands of years as shepherds, uh, with the shepherds on the, uh, um, on the hillsides. There are um, sheep camps that the whole family of shepherds and their families typically pitch tents um, as they live a rather nomadic lifestyle, tra- uh, traveling from pasture land to pasture land. And the dogs live in and amongst the shepherds and the, the sheep as they travel um, back and forth. And that's kind of important because we, when we meet people that are wanting to learn about the breed um, and that are interested in getting a livestock guardian, we really say that there's kind of an old school methodology that when you get a livestock guardian, that you should throw it out into the pasture. You don't talk to it. You don't touch it any more than you need to. You want it to bond with the animals and that the more person physical interaction that you have with that dog, the less chance that they will bond with the, with the animals. And what we found is that these dogs thrive on the relationship um, that they build with their shepherd. And so they walk in and amongst their families um, in these sheep camps and they walk in and amongst the, the flocks of sheep and they do it seamlessly. They, they aren't relegated to either being, uh, uh, having a relationship with a person or having a relationship with, with their livestock. They are fully capable of doing both. And, um, so that's really cool. So we really tell people that that's, um, that that's super, super important um, to do that. And so when we, when we send puppies home, we say, it's okay if you take a week or two and, and you bring that dog inside and you love that new dog and you bond to that puppy and you let him learn that he can trust you and you can trust him. And then you can take him back out to the pasture and start training him um, because he's already been in the pasture for 8, 10, 12, 14 weeks, however long he's been here. Um, <clears throat> he needs to know you and he needs to know that he can trust you so that you can have a working relationship going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other, the secondary use that they have in Armenia currently is um, for fighting. <laughs> and that is not something that we as a club um, here in America endorse. It's something that we really try hard to avoid. The fighting dogs are not true um, Armenian gampers in, arguably, in, um, in nature because the fighting dogs have been um, basically become a mixed breed between the Armenian gamper and other dogs um, from other nations to make them you know, um, more fierce. Specifically, we see some mixing with Russia and some of the other areas with the Russian dogs. Um, and so what we see is that the dogs that are in that fighting circle are not dogs that we typically, or at all, we do not want to import those dogs to America. We want to import the shepherd dogs, the, the sheep camp dogs. Mm-hmm. We want to have those dogs be part of the gene pool that we um, work for, um here in America, we really, the Armenian Camper Club of America, it, their focus is on breed preservation. And so by choosing very carefully what dogs we import, um, we have um, a better chance of preservation worldwide. Right. So I guess the best way to say it is to start off is that because it isn't a specific breed, it is a land race, they don't really have a specific breed standard. Mm-hmm. There are some things that we um, specifically want to avoid um, when we breed dogs. Um, 
specifically, we don't want any blue eyes on dogs. We don't want any merle coats. Um, we also want to be, when I think about what I want in a dog, I divide it into three categories. I, I divide it into physical, temperament, and um, their working ability. And so physically, we want them to have, you know, a dark nose with dark rimmed eyes. Um, we also want them to have a long body with a straight back. We want um, their legs to be um, angular and flexible. We want to avoid cow hawking and slaying of toes. So some of those basic things that you see in most breeds, um, you know, and physically, um, we want them to have kind of a, a, a body that in the rear is kind of balanced out in the front um, so that, so that they're not, the dog is not working harder than it needs to be working. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, the biggest um, area that I breed for, while I think physical um, composition is really important and I think working, is impo- working ability is important, I think temperament is the most important thing and that's kind of what I breed for most of all. Um, I try to match my temperament of each puppy with um, their potential job and their potential owners. So we do a lot of pre-screening ahead of time with people that want to have puppies placed with them. Uh, They'll tell me things like, okay, I have a large ranch uh, in the west, western United States or the Pacific Northwest, and I have maybe 100 acres, it's open field, I have maybe whatever. And so they'll they'll tell me what they have. Or somebody may come to me and say, I live in the Midwest and I have a five-acre homestead. Well, the type of dog that I place on a five-acre homestead, temperament-wise, is going to be different than the dog that I place on a, on a hundred acre ranch or mm-hmm. plus. Um, but I also think that there's a temperament standard that runs throughout the whole thing. We don't want a dog that is going to be guardy or, um, or, um, aggressive with children in any way. If a dog is aggressive with children, which we've never, I've never personally seen one like that. Um, then that, that dog would not be a good uh, candidate for uh, breeding purposes mm-hmm. and I, we would put that dog um, and just into a situation that that wasn't an option mm-hmm. um, and so that's kind of like for me the, the main thing and then when we're when we're talking about their working abilities we um, we want them to be good with stock though we need to like remember I think sometimes people get a dog and they think oh I have this puppy and this puppy may be, um, for example, we had pups with our last litter that we had this past fall that by four months were 60 and 70 pounds. So they will see a 60 or 70 pound dog and they think, oh, this dog's capable of doing an adult-sized dog job because they, they appear to be an adult-sized dog. But in real, reality, they're only four or five months old and they're still babies. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so we just have to keep our mind kind of in in that mindset that, that they still have growing to do. Um, in the whole livestock guardian world, the, the rule of thumb is that no livestock guardian is, is typically reliable before two years of age. 
though there are exceptions, and um, oftentimes we find exceptions. But if if you keep in mind that um, you have the plan that that they're not going to be reliable until they're two, and they they do great at four months or eight months or twelve months, then you're just pleasantly surprised. So. Um, that's kind of what we tell people to, to do is plan, have a plan in mind for the next couple months or for the next couple years of what, how you're going to continue this training because it, they take three years to fully, fully grow. Um, so they'll continue to grow for three years. And um, so we want them to never be scared or back away from a, um, from a situation. Um, and also remember that pol- being with poultry can sometimes take longer because they're like floppy little squeaky toys that um, <laughs> typically, <laughs> yes, so typically those are those can be triggers for some dogs. And so um, they all get it. It's just um, sometimes it takes a little bit more time with the, with the, with the um, poultry than it does um, with, say, a goat or a sheep or um, something like that. Um we do, we do. We're pretty picky on who we accept for our clients just because um, we want the dog to have a good life. And um, so these dogs can be used for any number of purposes. Um, predominantly, they're used as livestock guardians. Um, in the origination of the dog, they were used in Armenia for search and rescue dogs. Um, they were kind of like considered avalanche dogs, so they would go search and rescue for people that were lost. Um, and so, and they've also been used as companion dogs. So, so they can be trained to another job, but they must have a job, um, whether that's to guard their home, to guard their family. Um, they are not a good candidate for living in an apartment. Um, they're not a good candidate for um, living in a home that doesn't have um, some type of like physical boundary, like typically a fence is what, what we th- what we see. Um, we've seen some people use electric fence or not electric fencing, the um, underground fencing, and um, that's worked okay. But really, the best fencing is a visual fence that they can see. They don't typically challenge fencing too much, um, but they need that visual representation of this is my this is my my home and that this belongs to me and that outside of the fence is not my guard and that helps them be very content so um they need a job they also need um somebody that's going to be able to be with them and be consistent about their feeding and their training and um i would say like location as far as temperature is a non-negotiable they're very very flexible about the about the temperature that they can endure they do great um here in indiana we can go you know into the hundreds in the summer and we can also go into the negative 30s plus um in the winter so and they do great they tend to really love uh the winter time the most but we've placed dogs in florida with uh, and the rest of the south without any problems as well um, so typically, it's more about the house location and job. Um, mm-hmm. So if you have a house in a yard, that's that's much better than you know not having that, and right. also making sure that they have a job to do so that they feel, feel fulfilled. Right. Absolutely. I was just saying to somebody j- just today that I feel like I learned something new every single litter. Um, I did not grow up with dogs, and mm-hmm. so. This is a really, really, um, this is a whole new journey for me. I, I was not, um, 
I did not even grow up on a farm or um, I grew up a very suburban lifestyle. So it was kind of like starting from scratch. So, you know, um, I would say that I learned I learn something every time um, – typically about people, how to listen to people and listen to what they're saying and what they're not saying, um, as far as what they need. Um, in the dog, I've learned how to match dogs better. Every litter is better and better. And I've learned um, how to train these dogs. I didn't even know really how to train a dog. Mm-hmm. Um, when I when I started this all those years ago, um, so... A huge part of what we see in the Gamper is that they just have a lot of instinct. They're super, super smart. But there is a portion that we train, and and it's, it's I've always said that dog training is a lot, in my opinion, like raising children. It's, it's that consistency. If you can be consistent, um, then they get everything so much faster, and it's just easier all the way around. So um, I think that those are the things that I've probably learned the most. I, every litter I meet, um, I meet new people that become like close friends to, to us. We call them our Silver Ridge family, and it really is kind of like that. We just uh, the people that we meet, we stay in contact with, oftentimes. And and I'll have um, people will often say online. I see here and there people say, "Oh, is your dog from Silver Ridge?" Because it looks like my dog, and my dog's from Silver Ridge, and then they find each other and they communicate. Well, my dog's doing this, and my dog's doing this, and um, and then they kind of find each other and become friends with each other too, which is is really fulfilling too. Right. Yeah, I like that. Can you uh, talk about some of your uh, favorite breeds besides the the Gamper? I was kind of thinking about that. Um, because I don't have a whole bunch of experience with other breeds, I don't. Um, I've got to say that I'm really sold out on these guys. Um, right. We, we, when I was in high school, just about ready. When I was just about ready to leave the house uh, for college, we did end up getting a, a beagle, and so. Um, and then I ended up marrying my husband, whose father raised beagles for field trials. So. Most of my experiences with with the Beagles or with um, the Great Pyrenees, like we had those guys, and I love um, our, our Great Pyrenees that we had. That was just um, a keeper. He lived with he lived outside as a as a guardian for fourteen years, and that was uh, amazing. Um, and we've had maybe a dog here or there in my married life that was like a you know uh, an adopted dog mm-hmm. so um I, I wouldn't say that i have a whole bunch of experience with other dogs these just have been my dog and i'm, I'm kind of sold out on it right, right. and yeah <laughs> <clears throat> can you uh talk about like what your uh morning and, and evening routine is with your dogs especially sure. when you're when you're expecting a litter or have a litter absolutely yeah so um we spent individual and group time with every single dog um, about three times a day. And then we're typically out with them even more often than that, um, especially when we have litters on the ground. So um, each dog has their individual relationship with us, and then they have a relationship with us in a group. And so we make sure that um, especially in that group time where we're not only dealing with the dogs, but we're also out in the pastures walking and touching the goats and the other livestock. 
so that they can see our relationship also with the livestock and by seeing us touch and and you know rub on the backs of or the heads of another animal they see that we own that animal and that's our animal and then because they have a relationship that dog has a relationship with us they also want to uh, keep that animal safe and build a relationship with that animal Mm -hmm. so um so we try to 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 focus on that um i i've always thought that the more connected that you are to your animal the more they are willing to do what you ask of them these dogs are very independent thinkers and they um absolutely know know that you cannot make them do anything that they don't want to do (laughs) um (laughs) they are they are strong little dogs and they are um independent but with that being said my dog's come when I call them they sit when I tell them to sit um and it's not because they have to it's because they want to it's because they they have built a relationship with me and I have built a relationship with them Mm -hmm. and um it's just kind of a very um beautiful thing when it all works out like that Mm -hmm. um so um so in the mornings we go out and we feed all of the animals we milk our goats we spend time one-on-one with them. That happens even before we eat our own breakfast. <laughs> the most active times for these dogs are morning and evening, so at dawn and dusk. And um, then they, they lay around a lot through the middle of the day, especially if it's warm. Mm-hmm. So um, we try really hard to be out at the dawn and dusk time and um, catch them when they're active. So, um, And then we go out in the middle of the day, we check water, we check feed multiple times a day. We... We typically free feed, um, and that doesn't necessarily work well for everybody, but it works well for us, and we like that, so we just constantly check to make sure that there's food in in their serving areas, and um, when we have a litter on the ground, it also means that we're out there um, training. I'm a firm believer that if you want to train an animal, that a quick and instant correction um, is is going to make the quickest turnaround and um it's much better than letting them do it five times while you've been away from the pasture for five hours and then um you come back in on the sixth time you've corrected it so we literally divide the the kids up and 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 me up and we're out there hours and hours every day uh, when we have litters on the ground and that doesn't mean the mom's not correcting them the siblings aren't correcting them the other senior dogs aren't correcting them they're all doing that too but um, we're building that relationship so that when they go to their new home, if they don't have a senior dog, um, that they can receive direction very clearly and quickly from their new owner. Mm-hmm. So that's part of our day, too. And um, so most of that happens morning and evening. Right. Yeah. And could you tell, talk about how they react around kids, say from, you know, baby to 11, 12 years old? Yeah, sure. Um they are, I, don't, I wish I knew a better word, but they're just amazing with children. Um, one of my favorite stories that I like to tell people is that when, um, when my children were little, that um, if they would ride bikes around, you know, as, you know, early beginning riders at five or six mm-hmm. or whatever, um, you know, they're going to fall down, they're going to skin their knees. And um, of course, when the little kids do, they start screaming mm-hmm. <laughs> and crying. 
And my dogs, every single time that would happen, they would run for that child as fast as possible. And one would circle the child, and one would come up to the child and lick the, you know, the bloody knees and the wow. bloody elbows and the tears off the face. And um, instant, like they just instinctually knew, here's here's one on guard and here's one taking care of the problem, just like they would in the pasture with the animals. They tend to be especially um, cognizant of the smaller, weaker, more helpless animals and people. Um, so that means children and baby animals, they are just super sweet with. Hmm. Yeah, we're kind of non-traditional as far as um, dogs go in the traditional dog breeding world because they are livestock guardians. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have multiple pastures and we have multiple um outbuildings that are associated with those pastures so for example we've got an area for our standard size bucks a standard size or an area for our miniature bucks and then an area for our does that we rotate pastures on um for those does too and then we have a general perimeter around our property and around the house which includes all of the rest of the livestock and so um we typically run dogs in the in the general perimeter area, and then we run dogs in each of the pasture areas, and um, that works really well for us to, to do that. Um, and so we have housing via either lean-tos or barns that they can stay in in each of those pastures mm-hmm. with with the animals. We also um, have a couple kennels that we use on our property. Uh, we don't use them you know, like around the clock or anything. Um, but um, if, say, we're having um, a party or something, um, even though the dogs are, are, most dogs are typically safe around the kiddos, we still put them up because um, my dog, my kids know how to be respectful with dogs, but not all kids have been raised that way. Right. So we're just not going to put our, our dogs or our kids into situations that they aren't set up for success. Mm-hmm. Um so then they go into those, um, and those consist, they're very um, simple structures. They consist of a, a sheltered area and a run. And um, then the third thing that we do for um, for housing for our dogs is that we set up uh, multiple crates in um, another area, and we crate train all of our dogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, we just feel like that's really important because you just never know um, – you know, if somebody's going to be injured or somebody's going to be in heat or whatever, and, and you need to set, segregate that dog, um, and you don't want it to be another stressful situation. So we, we, we create train all of our dogs as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, smart. Can you talk about the diet and, and the reason behind your philosophy with the diet? Sure, sure. Right now we are feeding um, mainly a, a kibble-type diet, um, we typically top dress with, um, you know, some fish oils and some veggies, um, and occasion, occasionally some extra protein. Um, we have considered looking into raw diets and we know a lot of people that do that successfully, but that's not something that, um, I feel I have enough expertise on at this point to do it in a way that is beneficial to my dogs. And so, um, that's why we haven't moved in that direction, Mm -hmm. um. But we do see some benefits in that for sure. Yes, I'm feeding myself and my husband and our six kids and 
We've got um, several herds of goats and um, probably close to a thousand chickens and, yeah. and different poultry right now. Um, taking on that at this point is not something I feel like would be beneficial. So no. that's why we're not doing it. But I think there's a there's definitely a middle ground. Yeah. Um, that that is typically where most um, most people can can lie. You know. Mm-hmm. So we do the same thing with um, we treat our dogs at, at the medical clinic for what they need at the medical clinic, but we do a lot at home because we, we also know, you know, having, having livestock, we're used to, um, treating things on our own. We have, you know, a staple kit. We know how to do staples. We know how to give injections. We know how to do all of those things, but we also realize that there are times that they need to go to the doctor. We Mm -hmm. sometimes even use more homeopathic remedies, but, um, we're always watching to make sure that if they need medical intervention, that they have that. Mm-hmm. And have you run into any uh, typical health issues with the Gampers? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, typically our dogs, um, the only thing that we've really had is, um, you know, just typical injuries that they get out in the mm-hmm. pasture. We mm-hmm. had a dog um, maybe three weeks ago that cut his leg open on a metal building. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... You know, that's, it's just kind of a, a, it's not really a health issue. It's just, you know, one of those things that happens. And so we had to get him all tidied up. And and that was another instance where I was so glad he was crate trained because um, while he was okay with not, with being in the, in the pasture, the other dogs wanted to play, play with him and that just kept tearing it open. And so he needs to be in the crate for a while. So, Mm -hmm. Um, but what we see with these dogs is that, um, Generally, because of the, the land race nature, they are um, they are pretty healthy dogs. Mm-hmm. We encourage, as a club, um, having the dogs embark tested. Mm-hmm. Um, we've embark tested our dogs, and, and we know, you know, um, for sure that they're not passing on any genetic disorders um, or any. Um, other undesirable traits that we don't want to, to pass on because our breeding pool is so small at this point. Um, every every litter, you know, matters. I would say that the, the issues that we watch for as a club um, is that we've seen with some of our imports and some of the, the embark testing that some of the dogs have, a, you know, cardiac issues, just a few. Um, we've also seen... Um, that a few of the dogs, because um, we're getting dogs from the same area, or we're trying hard to not get them from the same area, but some people um, obtain dogs on their own and not through the club, mm-hmm. um, they may have a higher inbreeding coefficient. And so we try really hard when we're helping um, people decide how to breed their dogs to try to match them or pair them with a dog that has a very low inbreeding coefficient. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, then we've also seen a few instances, probably maybe in the 25 or 30 percent um, of uh, dogs having one um, coefficient for the um, degenerative myopathy. Mm-hmm. So um, that's probably the high. I mean, 30, 25 to 30 percent is not very high overall, but it's something that we obviously keep track of, and we try to help um, people that are breeding. 
um, even though with one coefficient, they're not going to, to be, um, they're just in the carrier status, they're not going to, to, to have any issue with their life. We obviously want them to breed to a dog who has, not, you know, doesn't have any character traits for that. Mm-hmm. So. Awesome. <clears throat> Yeah, so those are that's, that's the basic of it. We really don't see too many issues of hip dysplasia. It happens occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we test, we encourage, you know, when we're talking about um, doing testing, we encourage doing thyroids and, and cardiac, patella, those types of things. If you're going to go ahead and, and um, do your hips, you might as well do, do the other stuff while you're at it. So. Right, exactly. Well, do you have any uh, last words or anything uh, that I didn't bring up that, that you'd want to talk about? Well, I just think that um, these dogs are really just such a special breed, and, and I would encourage people just to look into them more uh, because they're just kind of that, that rare jewel. I really foresee them becoming more and more popular um, as, as they become more well-known. People are going to enjoy them and and um and have them be part of their typically their farm all right wonderful thank you again all right thank you have a good day you too bye-bye bye-bye